everybody. Welcome to the second podcast devoted to About Skylar Falls, the web serial at skyfalls.com. I'm Kira Lerner, the co-creator and writer of the series, which as of November 2012 celebrated its 15th anniversary on the web. Um, in honor of that occasion, I asked for questions and feedback from readers and fellow writers and pretty much anyone who is reading on Twitter or the Epiguide or Facebook, um, so I could create this series of podcasts. Although it actually wasn't going to be a series of podcasts, but I'm so I'm as wordy a speaker as I am a writer, apparently, and naturally answering two questions turned into like an hour-long process. So um, I'm sure my readers will not be surprised that I'm not concise. In addition to asking for reader feedback, I also created an audience survey at the end of season four, which was also in November 2012. And this survey was basically to ask folks what they thought of the fourth season, as well as how the series was going as a whole. The questions tend to be really in-depth, and I, you know, I ask readers to give on a scale of one to ten or one to five, you know, their feelings on certain storylines and characters, and uh, to let me know where the characters, how they feel the characters could improve, what features they'd like to see, and so on and so forth. And because it's so ridiculously over-detailed, and it takes a lot of time to fill out, I like to award some prizes to people who have taken the time to complete the survey. And I'm happy to say that this year there are three prizes that are being given out, um, or actually have already been given out. I'd like to congratulate third prize winner Dana. Um, she won a copy of uh, the ebook version of my novel Fierce Moon. Um, Fierce Moon is a, it's kind of like a novella more than a novel. Uh, it's a romantic suspense mystery, uh, time travel, supernatural story. Um, so it's got a, bit, a little bit of everything. So if you like Sherlock Holmes, um, or if you like uh, werewolf stories, or just romantic time travel stories, um, it might be an interesting little story for you to read. Anyway, um, so congratulations, Dana, and thank you very much for participating. Second place winner is Patrice, who is a longtime reader. Patrice also actually has the distinction of being the only person to respond to almost every feedback form that um, I include after each episode. Uh, These feedback forms, for those of you who don't notice them, um, uh, basically ask, what was your favorite character in this episode? Which storyline interested you the most? And, you know, do you have any comments? And Patrice has always been really good about responding. So thank you very much. So I'm really glad that she took part in this survey and I was able to give her um, a prize. So her prize is a $25 gift certificate to the online store of her choice. And in first place, drumroll please, uh, comes Joseph. I'm not sure exactly how long he's been reading ASF, but I do know that he's read all four seasons. So that is a pretty big achievement for anybody. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, his responses were hilarious and insightful and really, really helpful. So I knew the minute I read them that I just had to give him the top prize. And he gets the $25 gift certificate as well as a copy of Fierce Moon. So I hope you enjoy your gifts, everybody. And thanks again. Thanks to everybody who participated. We received about 45 responses um, that were complete and um, a few more that were not um, entirely filled out. And that's okay. I mean, any information that you guys give me is always greatly appreciated. So, since I took an entire hour last time and only answered a few questions, I'm going to do my best to speed things along. 
but I wouldn't bet on this being too much shorter than <laughs> the last episode. Um, what can I say? You guys provide me with a lot of interesting questions, and I do tend to yammer away. Um, there will be, I know, at least one more podcast, and that podcast will, I promise, get to the questions relating to writing in general and um, editing and thoughts about web fiction in, um, in the grander scheme of things and so on. This episode is still devoted to, you know, more ASF storylines and characters. And there is some talk about how I go about writing things but and planning, but I did want to separate the general stuff from the ASF-related stuff. So, anyway, with all that said, let's get started. The first question comes from Sarah, a longtime member of the ASF mailing list. Um, she wrote... The Skyfall's plots seem really well thought out, but you've mentioned that you like being interactive with the audience and giving us a say in things. I know you do viewers' voice polls sometimes and let us decide some plot points, but have you ever changed a storyline because of reader feedback? Like, if a bunch of people dislike a character or don't like how things are going, do you change them? Or, on the other hand, if readers react really well to someone, do you include them more often? Another question, have you ever started writing a story and then gone in a totally different direction because you yourself don't like how it's turning out? Phew, well, that is a bunch of great questions, um, actually. You know, in general, I've been very, very fortunate in that the audience has tended to go, go along with me for whatever the ride is. Um, yes, even including the pseudo-vampire thing. Um, at the time, no one questioned it. I have to say, when people started ASF and we gradually moved into the whole Asetato de Sangue storyline, everyone just rolled with it and it seemed to be like a natural development. People who've read uh, seasons three and four, say, and then go back and read the first season, they're taken aback by the whole Asetato de Sangue plot. And I understand that because by season three and four, I wasn't doing any kind of um, anything that over the top. So it's just interesting that, in general, the readers have really not complained that much about plot points. And, you know, I don't mean to brag about that either. You guys just don't have anything to say about them when they're bad. But usually, you know, I, I expect people to complain. But a few things have been changed, um, or at least tweaked a bit. I would have gone more into the whole Omnicorp development of the um, online magazine venture that they're doing, uh, Aventura. But because you guys hate Bertram so freaking much, <laughs> I just was like, I am not going to subject my audience to a character that they dislike this much. You know, I just because I happen to adore writing for him um, doesn't mean that I'm going to, you know, make you guys suffer. So um, so I pulled back a bit from that plot, although it was mentioned briefly in the season finale, and it is going to be something that's moving forward. I'm warning you guys right now. But, you know, hopefully I will make it interesting enough and will be Bertram light enough for you guys to tolerate. Um, so that's one plot that definitely has been affected. But the plot that's changed the most out of direct reader feedback it actually changed because of one particular reader's feedback <laughs> because it made me think so you know it was such a pertinent comment that it really took me aback and um, I had to really decide whether I wanted to proceed with the story and actually it's another it's an also an example of a plot that I've started writing and then decided to go in a completely different direction on my own as well so it's a two-pronged answer here first the part that I changed 
on my own. And I have a storyline, quote-unquote, Bible. Um, many writers of ongoing serials have one. And um, basically for each season, I write out in narrative format um, everything that's going to take place throughout the season. And for this season, or for, I should say, for season four, yay, it's no longer this season. Um, that still is like news to me. <laughs> so for the fourth season, I included a few plots, and one of them, of course, was the Play City kidnapping with Chelsea and Jem and Greg and Rena and all that stuff. Now, in my document, and I haven't changed it, you know, I don't go back and change the, the Bible. It remains there as an ugly reminder of where my first instincts are, and quite often my first instincts suck. Um, I'll be very honest about that. You know, I really am a better editor than I am an instinctive writer. You know, I'm someone who absolutely has to go back and change things and perfect them. So, you know, I hope that doesn't take any mystique away from me. But uh, anyway, in the Bible, the Placity kidnapping story was going to be much more of an adventure romp, kind of almost lighthearted, really. Almost a Scooby-Doo adventure, because, you know, it took place in an abandoned amusement park. Chelsea and Rena were going to get kidnapped, or Chelsea was going to get kidnapped, and then Rena was going to somehow get involved. And even in the outline, I had no idea how Rena was going to end up stuck with Chelsea. It's basically, in my Bible, it says, Rena gets there somehow, worry about it later. Um, And it took me ages to figure out a way of getting her involved, by the way. You have no idea what it took me. But anyway, so they were going to get stuck in the warehouse. Jem wasn't going to be able to come up with the money, so Greg and Jem were going to go off and somehow rescue um, the women. They were going to end up stuck in this haunted house, and then it was going to be up to the women to rescue the guys. And I thought that was going to be kind of fun, and, you know, it was going to show the adventurous side of Rena, which she doesn't get to show all that often, and there would be a lot of banter between Rena and Chelsea, and Jem and Greg, and blah, blah, blah. So, you know, really an entirely different atmosphere for this storyline was the original plan. But to nobody's surprise, I'm sure, I eventually decided to go darker. (laughs) And really, the reason for this was because I wanted to examine Chelsea as a character and to see what she was made of and what would happen if her life was truly in danger and if she was permanently harmed from the situation. I thought that was much more interesting and also it would serve as a real uh, comeuppance for Jem, a real slap in the face that something he did caused permanent damage to someone whom he cares about. Again, I thought it would affect Charles and Chelsea's relationship, and I just figured that having a much more serious take on this kidnapping would be more in line with ASF and would have more long-term story potential. So that was my own change. So, But I was still going to have Jem not able to come up, with, come up with the money, and that would be how Chelsea and Rena got, you know, blown up real good in the, uh, in the warehouse. Now... Where the change comes from the reader comment is that um, at some point during the fourth season, you know, it was ten years long, so I, I don't remember all that well, but it was before the resolution of the Play City kidnapping, definitely. And um, a reader who goes by the name of Cruella on the forums, who is well known on the Epiguide and also for those of you who follow the ASF message board, for being very what's the correct word, straightforward and honest and sometimes critical 
but well-meaning, but definitely critical. <laughs> um, anyway, so she posted a comment, and she turned her eyes to Jem, and she complained about Jem being too much of a wimp. Uh, she said his schemes never really worked out. You know, he was supposed to be such a big manipulator, but he never really did anything, you know, that worked. And um, she wanted to see more schemers and someone more successful, and she was just finding him boring. Any any writer who gets feedback like that, um, or, you know, gets any sort of critical feedback, is their first instinct is almost always going to be a bit defensive, you know, they're going to immediately sort of bite back at that, um, at that sort of comment, but, you know, I never let that be my, uh, only response to, to commentaries, because, first of all, I'm not, I, I have a very fragile ego, and so I tend to take criticism very much to heart. You know, my problem is not that I'm going to be overly defensive, it's usually that I'm going to be overly, um, cowed by criticism, and I'm going to want to give up the entire serial because I think I suck suddenly. When I read her feedback, you know, especially because it involved Jem, a character who I'm really happy with, I was quite surprised, and it took me a while to really mull over how I wanted to react, and, but the more I thought about her comments, the more correct I thought she was. It's true that Jem had just burned down his own building um, for the insurance money. Nevertheless, he really hadn't had his mojo working, shall we say, since he was beaten up by Johnny um, way back in season three, and um, really almost at the beginning of season three, so that we're talking 1999 here. And I think that's perfectly understandable, and his, you know, and that was part of his character arc intentionally. And I knew that he was going to win back the paper at the end of the season, um, but that winning the paper was going to be from Olivia saving his bacon, as you saw. It wasn't from anything he'd really done. So I needed to think, okay, so how do I fix Jem's character? How do I make him more proactive and schemy and all that? I thought, well, maybe he could at least come up with the money for the kidnapping ransom somehow. Uh, I'm not exactly sure how, and, you know, that made me think. I, I figured that I could still have the warehouse building blow up because it would be easy for Cameron to, you know, do something that horrible just to teach Jim a lesson. So that was pretty much, you know, that was okay. That wouldn't ruin my plans. But I figured, how is he going to come up with the money? And I looked at everyone that he could possibly ask in every avenue, and I, I figured, well, the most natural person would be Charles, but Jem wouldn't risk going to Charles, because then he would have to admit that Chelsea's kidnapping was his fault, and there's no way in hell that Jem would do that. So it took me a little while until I had the brainstorm that, hey, why doesn't he pretend to be a kidnapper and then ask Charles directly for the money? And that was awesome, and I'm like, okay, cool, so this is a horrible thing for him to do, that's right on target for Jem, so I started to have him, you know, I was writing the scene, and then it hit me, an even better light bulb moment, why not have him ask for more money, you know, it would be totally like Jem to seek a profit from this whole situation, especially because he would justify it in his mind, uh, because he'd gone to Charles for money for the paper in the, you know, earlier, and Charles had said no, and Jem kind of felt that Charles owed him a favor, because Jem had hired Chelsea as a result of Charles uh, asking him to. So 
so this would be Jem's weird, you know, mindset that he figured, well, I can ask for more money. I know it's, you know, maybe it's wrong, but, you know, Charles should have given me the money for the paper in the first place. This wouldn't have happened. So, you know, once I had that light bulb moment, I was just so delighted because it's, you know, disgusting that Jem would try and, you know, make money on this horrible situation, but it's also perfectly within Jem's character. And, it shows him being a fast thinker and um, scummy yet affable. And if, once the audience read all this stuff, um, they totally went with it. They loved that he came up with this plan and they applauded him, which is just hilarious. Jem is someone who can do some of the worst things in ASF uh, and yet manage to remain one of the most popular characters. I don't understand it and I don't even want to try and analyze it. Because I don't want to screw it up, but... Anyway, so this was as a direct result of Cruella's questioning Jem's character. That change would not have been there if it weren't for that. So, there you are. That is your answer, Sarah. Um, that is an example of a storyline that definitely changed for the better, thanks to readers. Um, or one specific reader. But as far as you mentioning that plot seeming well thought out, thank you for that, by the way. Um, that is total smoke and mirrors a lot of the time. I mean, okay, I do plan quite a lot of ASF, but a remarkable amount of uh, plot twists are actually improvised while I'm writing the scenes. Um, I would be absolutely embarrassed to tell you how much is improvised. Talking about storylines that I planned and then went in a different direction. So I mentioned the Play City going from a Scooby-Doo adventure to a more serious look. There are actually three other plots that went in entirely different directions while I was writing, um, and they're still in my Bible, and I look at them again, they are sort of there to remind me just how bad my first instincts are. <laughs> so, for example, in, oh, and I should mention, plot spoilers, ahoy, for the third season. So if you haven't read the third season, I do implore you to go back and read it, so that you can get to the plot twist yourself and enjoy it um, as others did who read it, you know, while it was happening. It's just so much better, trust me. Um, okay, so caveat there, if you haven't already turned off the podcast, I'm going to now reveal the plot twist. Okay. In the third season, in my original plans, Tristan was going to have an affair with Danielle. Period. That was the whole thing. He was going to have an affair with his business partner's wife and, you know, his business partner, he would then find out would is a leader of a crime organization and there would be a lot of danger and um, <clears throat> he was going to sort of fall in love with Danielle and Danielle would possibly be in love with him and this, by the way, was before I really worked out Danielle's storyline. As a matter of fact, all of these three plots that I'm going to discuss revolve around Danielle. And that just shows you how little I'd really planned her character as of the third season and the fourth season even. Um, so, yeah, I just, you know, I look back at that and I see the plans for him to just have this affair with Danielle. And the reason why this was going to happen was, um, Tristan and Beth were always going to be together, but I knew that Beth was not ready for a relationship as of the third season. She's not well enough to have a, an, 
adult relationship yet. Um, but I really wanted Tristan to, for lack of a better word, get some already <laughs> because it's been a really, really long time for him. So I just figured, okay, Danielle will be sort of a stop along the way before he gets to Beth. But to be honest, I don't know what finally changed my mind on this because really I'd written the whole thing out and I think I had Tristan go to the lighthouse. Um, it was as late as that uh, episode where I just kept thinking, I just, I'm not really happy with this plot. It's so, uh, it's so trite and, you know, typical mob story where someone falls in love with the mobster's wife and calamity results and blah, blah, blah. And it's just like Tristan to do something this stupid anyway. So I really didn't want to wait on the Beth Tristan relationship, but I kept thinking, how can I have Beth have this relationship? And then I realized, well, wait a second, she's got altars. Why can't I give the affair to one of the altars? Now at the time, Beth only had three altars um, that I'd planned. Uh, I knew that there were others that hadn't been seen yet, but the only ones I had really worked on were Lizzie and Bitsy and Molly, none of whom would have had an affair with a guy. So I had to invent Amanda and Samantha, the two characters, and I thought, well, okay, so she doesn't, Beth isn't even going to know that she has this affair. And I kind of like the idea of Tristan doing something stupid, because he's always doing something stupid, but, um, or thinking that he was betraying his business partner and his own ethics, um, you know, so maybe he would be fooled, and for whatever reason, one of Beth's alders would pull this little play-acting scheme on him. And really what sold it for me was the sudden realization, you know, I could probably fool the audience too. You know, would I be able to write a storyline where the audience is unaware that Tristan isn't having an affair with the woman they think they're ha- that he is? And so it became kind of a writing game or an exercise for me to see how long I could sustain this con on the audience. And um, as it turned out, quite a long time. <laughs> and lasted the entire third season. So, obviously, the storyline is so much better than the original that I put on paper. It it let me get Beth pregnant and without her knowing, which is a plot line that I have literally never seen before, someone with dissociative identity disorder getting pregnant and not having a clue how that would happen. Um, usually because maybe it's never been done on soaps, for example, because people are always having sex. So if they get pregnant, it's not really a huge surprise. But on ASF, or at least with Beth, she was not having any sex at all. So of course for her, it would be a total shock. It would seem like an impossibility. And I just love that twist. And most importantly, the fact that she was so screwed up that she got herself pregnant and didn't know about it was what got her into therapy. And that was the direction that I needed her character to take, so that she would finally get herself into a psychiatrist's office and start the healing process and it also helped Tristan start on his downward spiral where he would get bitter towards her and so on and so forth. So, way better storyline. You know, and now I just can't believe that it was originally going to be Danielle. I mean, it would be so different. And Danielle's character would be so different if I had gone through with it. You know, she wouldn't be the person she is today. Um, so the second plot that I changed, literally mid-scene, was during the Hope kidnapping storyline when Ian hid Daphne in his house because Daphne had kidnapped Hope and um, she was on the run and Danielle was coming into the room and 
Daphne was afraid of meeting Danielle because she'd already seen Danielle at Hannah's house when she kidnapped the baby. So Daphne was afraid that Danielle would recognize her. Okay, so I had Ian in the room and Danielle was coming into the room. And now at this point, these two had never interacted um, before. I mean, the Nichols family had only been introduced in the really for real in the third season and in particular the whole Cameron uh, Danielle Ian Becca Simon group um, really had had no introduction whatsoever until maybe two or three episodes prior to that so Ian and Danielle had no interaction and I really wasn't again I wasn't sure of what Danielle's character was going to be and you know just generic society mob wife type of person now, what I do when I write a scene between characters is I act it out um, because I try and make the dialogue as believable as possible. So I like to act out one character and then continue the dialogue from the other character and, and so forth. So it's very natural. It's also very helpful if I have no idea where the scene really needs to go, which happens more than it really should. But So anyway, so I started having a conversation between Ian and Danielle and... Um, as it turned out, Cameron wasn't home, so they were talking to each other oddly as equals, which, um, you know, it made sense for me initially because Ian had already been portrayed, at least with Daphne, as sophisticated and somewhat jaded, and yet he was only 19, and I was kind of curious about why he got that way, and I hadn't really explored that. I figured, well, he's been away at some Swiss boarding school, so he's more, you know, sophisticated than your average 19-year-old. But, um, as he was talking with Danielle, Danielle started to flirt with him, and you know, part of that was just I knew she was going to be a very sexual character, but the idea that she was flirting with her stepson, who's still pretty young, at 19, was kind of icky to me, and I kind of went with it in my faux conversation, and Ian wasn't reacting the way that I kind of would have thought he would. (laughs) And I know this is weird for me to say, because it's all coming from my mind, but for whatever reason, I thought it was more interesting that Ian was kind of acting as if he expected her flirting, and he was tolerating it, and um, as a matter of fact, I just got a vibe that there was something between them. Not that it was that they were having an affair currently, but that they'd already had one. And that just suddenly was, came out of left field. I really don't know why my mind went in that particular icky direction, (laughs) especially because if they'd had an affair in the past, Ian would have probably been around 18. Um, And that's just like so inappropriate for someone who has been raised by this woman as his basically the only maternal figure that he's had. Um, it was so inappropriate that I knew I had to go with it, <laughs> you know? So, um, that was basically the genesis of the Ian Danielle vibe, and suddenly I no longer just had a triangle storyline, which is going to be Ian, Tyler, and Daphne, of course, but suddenly Danielle was part of the mix, and I had to basically go back to my Bible and rewrite this entire history and decide, okay, when did they start having an affair? How did it work out? How did it end? And, um, what did Danielle want from the future and um, had to just go back to the drawing board because of this improvised scene between these two characters. So that's another example. Okay, and the third and final story, which again, I'm almost embarrassed to reveal. Um, This was the Alex, Martina, Danielle plot from the fourth season. 
And this was really the result of two changes that, that needed to be made. Back in the first season, as many of you will remember, Alex pressured Martina into having sex with him in order to give Tristan a plea bargain um, for during his murder trial. And um, Martina went along with it because Tristan had basically begged her, get me out of this trial. I can't let evidence be presented that hurts my brother's reputation. Um, so Martina was avidly seeking a plea bargain. Alex had turned her down. Now he suddenly changed his mind and he made it very clear that Tristan was not going to have an easy time of it in prison, to put it mildly. And Martina felt that she had to go through with it. So they had sex. Uh, Alex took the tape from the security camera and um, he then had this tape for like the next two seasons and nothing ever came of it. He just kept mentioning it to her. And now throughout, readers kept noticing, you know, all of these scenes between Marty and Alex are the same. You know, Alex kind of implies that he has something holding over Martina's head and Martina's sort of intimidated, but, you know, where are you going with this? When is this tape going to finally get shown? And the reason why, I'll reveal this now, that it took me so long to get to this tape um, was that I really didn't like what the result of the tape was going to be. Um, let me see if I can explain this better. Uh, the problem with, was with the setup of the way that they slept together. Martina had had two dates with Mike, and then they broke up. And in the interim, that's when this uh, plea bargain sex deal thing happened. And the problem with Alex holding the tape over Martina's head was that I really didn't like the idea that Marty was supposed to be so upset about Mike finding out about this tape when she hadn't been going out with Michael for all that long before and they were broken up anyway. So it's really none of Mike's damn business what she did. You know, yeah, I don't know. He, I just didn't like the idea of her being that cowed by this tape. And without that element, I really didn't want to bring up the tape because there was nothing Martina would do except laugh at him or say, you know what, fine, show the damn tape. I don't care. I look bad, but you look bad too. Um, you know, it's not exactly kosher for a DA to make this kind of plea bargain. Um, okay. Although the truth is that Alex didn't go through with a plea bargain. That was why it was so scummy of him, or even more scummy of him. Anyway, so that's why I just kept putting it off and putting it off. And I, I realized, look, I've got to, if excuse the expression, shit or get off the pot on this stupid tape thing. I need to get it out there and over with. So how am I going to do this? And in my plans for the fourth season, I had Alex, um, again, Alex and Danielle were having an affair at this point, and Martina had seen the two of them together, and so Martina was now a threat, and Danielle was trying to get Alex to keep Marty quiet, and so I figured, okay, he'll use the tape in that respect, he'll try to get her to, um, he'll threaten her with the tape, and, uh, you know, that'll be his plan. But again, the issue that I ran into was Martina's reaction to this, and I just couldn't see it. I didn't want Martina to be so freaked out by it, even though by this point she was engaged to Mike. But um, I just didn't like what it was saying about Marty's character. So in my original plan, 
Alex would lure her to the yacht. Um, he would show her the tape. Marty would react exactly as you saw her react. Um, she basically said, this is horrible. I can't believe you did this, but you know what? Fine. Show the damn tape. I don't care. You're pathetic. And Mike is 80 times the guy that you are. And I'm leaving, you know, basically just laughing in his face. And Alex would find out that they were, that Mike and Martina were now engaged. The argument would escalate. And then Alex would get so upset and disgusted and jealous with Martina, he would then rape her. And then that was the plot in my Bible. Still there staring me accusatorily. Um, And uh, yeah, I just think that was a horrible decision. So obviously I changed this. (laughs) You know, I was all ready to write the scene. And even in the argument that's there now, um, I'm almost certain that there are some readers who were reading this story and watching Alex and Marty get into this hugely, almost physical argument. Um, And I'm almost certain that people were expecting him to rape her. But I wanted to confound expectations. And I then thought to myself, well, what's about the Danielle's equation? You know, if I'm smart enough to realize that Martina wouldn't react the way Alex thinks she's going to react, Danielle certainly would also realize that this is not something that a strong woman would be cowed by. So when Alex finally told her of the plan, I figured Danielle would start her mind working and would then come up with the idea of the whole um, oblivion, the drug, um, drugging Martina, and then basically giving Alex the choice, okay, um, once Martina was unconscious, she would tell Alex, all right, you have a choice. You can drop her off the side of the boat and kill her the way I'm perfectly happy to do, or let's redo the videotape idea or the DVD idea. And now that Martina's engaged, you know, she, things are more risky for her. And if she sees herself having consensual sex or seemingly consensual sex with you, um, on a DVD, that is way more damning than your stupid other tape. So this was such a horrifyingly awful idea for a woman to come up with against another woman that, again, I kind of knew immediately that this is what I wanted to do. (laughs) God, I'm really a sadist. Um, And so that's exactly what happened. Uh, It changed from a straightforward rape plot where, again, Martina would have afterwards, I guess, been... I don't even know. I mean, the idea that she wouldn't tell Mike about the rape or that she wouldn't go to the police, I just did not like that. Um, I didn't like doing that to Martina. But the drug idea, on the other hand, she's 90% certain that she wouldn't sleep with Alex consensually, but it's that 10% thing that really is getting to her. And the video is really incriminating. There's no way she can claim that it's not current because, again, her engagement ring is in the video. And... It also just made Danielle who she is. Immediately I knew what kind of a character uh, Danielle was going to be. And this is basically a sociopath. Someone who would do something like this to another human being. um, Not even just a sociopath. She's uh, a sadist and a voyeur, as Alex has mentioned. Um, And she obviously gets off on manipulating other people and doing horrible things to others. 
And um, she's pretty much a monster, is what she is. And it also had the benefit of making Alex, of all people, who had been at best one and a half dimensional, um, <laughs> into at least two to two and a half dimensions, um, because his first reaction to this suggestion from Danielle was that he was horrified by it, at, you know, justifiably, and he didn't want to kill Martina, you know, again, he's not a cartoon villain, although he's sometimes been portrayed that way, I will fully admit, but I was just able to sh- give some shading to him, and where, yes, he did eventually go through with it, um, and yes, he didn't exactly object to the idea of having sex with her once things started, but afterwards, he's been shown to be quite weary and somewhat self-disgusted and not the same Alex that we've come to expect. And he's much more protective of Martina, oddly enough, considering what he did to her, uh, against Danielle than one would have thought, I think. So this enriched his character, it enriched Danielle, um, and it gives Martina a reason for not going to the police, because she's really not certain the drug is no longer in her system. Well, she did go to the ER, as a matter of fact, but the drug now would not be in her system, and the fact that she thinks the sex might have been consensual means that the fact that any DNA evidence that comes into play isn't really <clears throat> going to be helpful for her, because if they had sex consensually, then there would be evidence, obviously. So, so anyway... That is the uh, story that very, very fortunately changed from uh, yet another rape story to something much more complex and, um, well, grosser, I guess, is really the truth. And I think more just original, what can I say? It was all for the betterment of the story. And there you go. This proves that writers out there if you come up with a story that seems like it's going to be just a repeat of something that some other story, some other serial has done, rework it. Don't be afraid to revisit your Bible or your plans and change them up a bit. Don't be satisfied with yet another retread and think that it's going to be different just because you have different characters, because that's not enough of a reason. You really need to think a little harder, as I think, as as a writer. So, this is the very long answer to Sarah's extremely um, interesting question. I hope people now don't think I'm a horrible planner. (laughs) Um, So, uh, there you go. Thank you very much, Sarah, for the question. Okay, well, that question took a little longer than I was expecting it to, but um, it was very interesting, and it was multi-part, so I have an excuse for being that wordy. At least I hope so. I'm going to split this podcast at this point into two parts. So there are two more questions, and they too are pretty interesting questions, and uh, I hope you guys will tune in. Thanks to everyone who wrote in, and um, oh, thanks to everybody, by the way, who gave me encouragement from the first podcast. I really appreciate that. I'll speak to you later, and I hope you do listen to part two. Thanks again. Bye-bye. Thank you.